The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Good morning once again, church. Would you pray with me one last time before we get into God's Word? And Father, even in the singing of that song, we recognize that there is a sight and understanding that is not merely intellectual, that doesn't only happen optically with our eyes, but there is that seeing that happens with our hearts. And I pray that you would open our hearts today, that you would give us sight to be able to see marvelous things out of your word, that your word would penetrate deep within us, that it would take root so that it might bear fruit for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14. And our plan is that we are working through Psalms 11 through 20, and then we're going to go to the book of Genesis. I know Seth made that announcement last week, but I just wanted to get it in front of everybody. (laughs) Didn't go off quite as planned for Seth, but uh, he did get it out at least. but want to keep that in front of everybody. We're going to go to Psalm 20, and then we're going back to work our way through the book of Revelation. So Psalm 14 is where we find ourselves today. Years ago, I picked up a three-volume commentary on the book of Psalms by C.H. Spurgeon called The Treasury of David. If you ever come across one of these, I would encourage you to find it or to pick it up. You can get it at thrift stores oftentimes. Uh, Lots of content, lots of great encouragement, goes through every single one of the Psalms. And in this treasury of David, in Psalm 14, Spurgeon recounts a story of a man who was aboard a ship. And this man claimed to be an atheist. His first time on on a ship, and the ship began to roll and to be tossed around, and this man in dread fell upon his knees, and he confessed to the chaplain, I was an atheist, but now I believe. I, I want to believe Now, when some of the men on board the ship heard that there was an atheist on board, they didn't know what to think. They had never even heard the word. They thought, actually, that it was some strange sort of fish. So they came running to see this atheist. Never heard of such a thing. 
But soon after, the winds died down, the seas calmed, and port was in sight. And guess what this man did? He encouraged, he asked everybody on board, he begged them to say nothing about what happened around his confession of belief in God. I want to take that back. Now that I'm safe, now that I'm secure, I don't believe in God. Well, after being on shore for a couple of days, one of the the crewmen began giving him a bad time about his confession. Yes, you did confess belief in God. No, I didn't. And back and forth they went until they began to duel. And this man who claimed to be an atheist was actually struck with a sword. And as he started bleeding, he confessed belief. In God. I believe. But then he learned that this wound was not going to be fatal. And what did he do? Again, denied. I don't believe in God. I'm going to be okay. Well, I'd ask you this morning is this the way of wisdom? As you hear this account, do you think this man walked in wisdom? I would even ask you this morning, was this man really an atheist? One who believed that there was no God? I would suggest to you that he wasn't an atheist. Though he may have claimed to be an atheist, more properly, I think, he was an anti-theist. He was simply against God did not want to submit his life to the rule and to the authority of God. Well, as we come to Psalm 14 this morning, we come to this statement in verse 1 that there is no God. These are the words of the fool, David writes. There is no God. Similarly to this man aboard the ship who just refused to submit himself to God until things were dire, until he was desperate, and then he would confess some belief, but then when things smoothed out, once again, no, I won't believe, I won't confess, I won't submit. Back and forth, he vacillated. Well, we see in verse 1 of Psalm 14 what I call the, the fool's corruption. The fool's corruption. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, we're going to camp here on this verse for a while this morning. We are going to to work through the entire psalm, all seven verses, but we're going to give some consideration to this person who says there is no God. Now, David shows us, David tells us that this man's proclamation isn't just from his lips. The fool says, not with his lips, but the fool says in his heart, there is 
know God. Now, as you come across this in the Bible, the heart, the heart, when we think about emotion, we think about a heart, right? When you see initials carved into the side of a tree and there's a heart between them, it's a symbol of emotion. There's love and there's affection. So we tend to think of the heart as the center of emotion, In the Bible, the heart is more than just a symbol or the center of emotion, but it's also of the thinking, of the intellect. The heart is the the center of the person, the will, all-encompassing. And so the fool says in his heart, in the center of all that he is, mind, will, and emotion, there is no God. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's even more simple than that. It's cleaned up a little bit for us in English, but it would read, no God. There is, is is added for our understanding and for our readability. But really, the fool says in his heart, no God. This is a defiance. This is an anti-theism. I do not want to submit to a God who would rule over me. So this isn't only feeling, but this is what the fool thinks about. This is what the fool has convinced himself to believe in. And this is what the fool has decided to act upon. A fool. This person is called a fool because this person acts against all good reason. Against all good reason. It's not that this person is uninformed. Oh, I never knew that there was a God. No, this person has that understanding. There's no excuse there. It's not that this person is questioning. Is there a God or is there not a God? Would you help me to know? There's not a sincere questioning. There's not an inquiring. Would you tell me if there is a God or no? No, this is that they are obstinate. No God. That's what the fool says. The folly of the fool refuting sound judgment. I want to walk us through a a number of Proverbs, and I just want you to hear in these Proverbs the folly of the fool. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But a fool is going to despise, to look down on, to disregard wisdom and instruction. They go against sound judgment. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 5 tells us, a fool despises his father's instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is prudent. 
There it is again, this knowledge, this instruction, this sound judgment, and a fool despises it. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Not wanting to arrive at understanding, not wanting to arrive at the truth, but no, I only want my opinion to be heard. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Do you see the folly of the fool? Despising wisdom and instruction and knowledge and refuting sound judgment and going against it and only wanting to believe what they want to believe? That's foolishness. But it's not that this person, the fool, and I want you to understand this, the fool is not the village idiot. It's not the person with the low IQ. No, the Westminster Bible Dictionary says that foolishness, foolishness is not a negative condition, but it's a condition of wrong action in the intelligence or heart or both. So the fool can be highly educated. The fool can be degreed like Fahrenheit, be wealthy and be powerful. An example of this is found in the story of a man in the Bible whose name actually means fool, Nabal. Are you familiar with Nabal? 1 Samuel chapter 25, you can turn back there if you would like. I'll read some accounts for us. 1 Samuel chapter 25 says that David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. Now, Nabal, that's our word here in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, the Nabal says in his heart. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. 
So these men go to Nabal, and they make this announcement, and they make this request and this inquiry, and Nabal responds, verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told David all this. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. This man, Nabal, he was given good reasoning. David and his men actually protected his shepherds and his livestock, his flock. And now they're saying, you have this great feast prepared. Can we come and can, can we join? Can we take part in this? Do you have something for us? And Nabal obstinate man, a hard-hearted man. Who is David? Who is David? Why should I give anything to David? Now, even the young men of Nabal, the shepherds, they understood the protection that they received. One of the young men, verse 14, came and told Abigail, Nabal's wife, She's more reasonable. Let's go speak to her. And says, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he, that is Nabal, railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This was Nabal, a fool, as David asked for provisions, but against reason, against evidence, Nabal is obstinate, disrespectful toward David. And then as Abigail is informed and she intervenes and she steps in and she says this later down in chapter 25, Starting in verse 23, I'll read, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal, that is fool, is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now she gives provisions. She gives provisions to David and to his men. And soon after this, Nabal dies. The Lord strikes him. His heart becomes like stone, and he dies. He is a man that 
Though he was rich, though he had a great deal of power and influence, he continued to act against all sound judgment. Good reason. He was the epitome of the fool. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about foolishness as well. In chapter 1, in verses 18 through 25, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time this morning, but you can write that down. You can read that later. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And in that, we read that the truth about God is known. God reveals in heaven his splendor and his majesty. It's seen throughout God's creation so that those who disbelieve are without excuse. They cannot claim ignorance about God, but instead, Paul says, they exchanged God's glory. They exchanged God's glory for lesser glories. They spiral down into further darkness, and they became, what's the word that Paul uses? Fools. They became fools as they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, even though it was in front of them, and they said, no, we won't believe, we won't submit. We're going to do as we wish, and that is the path of foolishness. And they became fools. Now, you might be here this morning, and you might say all of the right things about God with your lips, but I ask, what is said in your heart? What is it that is spoken in your heart, and what is it that is carried out in your actions? This is a case of practical atheism. You might confess with your mouth that, yes, I believe in a God, but what about in your practice? What about in the way that you walk, in the way that you live, in the way that you think? You might speak one way just to to satisfy the people that you're around and so that you can fit in, perhaps. But in your heart, I don't want to submit to God. A practical anti-theism. I don't want to submit. I don't want to obey. You might confess belief in God with your lips, but resist or deny God in your heart and with your actions. Even look at the Apostle Paul as an example. When he was Saul, he was exceedingly religious, but he was even at that time persecuting Christ himself. And when he was confronted on the Damascus Road, He finally submitted to God. It was irrefutable. It was undeniable. Christ had appeared to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul would not be a fool. He would not remain a fool. He turned. He repented. He believed. And he lived his life for Christ. 
And so in verse one, we have the, the man looking up to God or looking up to heaven, you could say, and stating that there is no God. In verses two and three, we have God's perspective looking down on man. So this is the Lord's observation in verses two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is the Lord's observation of all of the things that might get our attention. Of all of the things that should be of interest to us, don't you think that what the Lord has to say, what the Lord observes, what he sees and has to say about it, shouldn't that be of keen interest to us? So the Lord looks down. What is his perspective? What are his conclusions as he looks down from heaven upon men and upon women? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. None who does good, not even one. This is the human condition. Apart from God's intervening work, this is the depravity of mankind. This is what God knows to be true about men and women. Aside from his saving work, this is corruption that is broad and inclusive. You want to talk about inclusivity? Here's some inclusivity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. There is none who does good, not one. It's not limited to any special nation or language or class of people. It includes all people. This corruption is broad and inclusive, but also this corruption is deep and comprehensive. It's deep and comprehensive. It's just not the occasional wrong choice No, this is at the core of mankind. Depravity, that is what we are born into. When Adam sinned, disobeyed, sin came into the human race so that all born, even like David said, it was in sin that my mother conceived me. Even from conception, we are sinful And so when we sin, it's because that is what is in our nature. It's not that we are sinners because we've done wrong, because we have sinned. No, we sin, we carry out sinful deeds and actions and words and thoughts because that is what our nature is apart from God's saving work. In Genesis 6, Before the flood, when God looks down from heaven, what does he see? 
the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is how deep and how comprehensive this corruption is. Does this psalm seem familiar to you? Maybe at this point, as, as we're looking at verses 2 and 3, you say, this seems familiar. Well, you'd be right. Do you know that this psalm is exceedingly important? Exceedingly important. Now, all the Bible is important, and every psalm is important. But this one is exceedingly important. Why do I say that? When something's repeated in the Bible, it's repeated for emphasis because it's important. When you hear us up in front and you hear us repeating something several times, we do so because we think it's important. When God repeats something in the Bible, even more so, give it attention. It's important. It's repeated for emphasis. And so we have Psalm 14. And if you flip ahead and you read Psalm 53, you're going to read very much the same thing, almost word for word. It's repeated. It's emphasized. It's important. And if that weren't enough, it's repeated again. Romans chapter 3. Paul cites Psalm 14. As Paul is making this this broad sweep, we looked already at Romans chapter 1, how people became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They are without excuse because they can see the evidence of God's handiwork, but they deny it, and they became fools fools. And Paul continues to to work through. In Romans 2, he goes through the religious ranks, from judges to those who try to follow the law, from those who teach the law, those who are circumcised. We are going to obey the law. And then in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, he summarizes all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everybody. And then he quotes Psalm 14. There is none who does good, not even one. If there were anybody reading the book of Romans and saying, wait, wait, I'm I'm an exception. He didn't cover the category that I'm in. Psalm 14 is pretty broad and inclusive. None are without excuse Nobody will be justified by their own works. That's the point that Paul is driving at. All are condemned under sin. And there must be a justification that comes from outside of them. There must be a salvation. There must be a savior who comes to deliver them out of their depravity. And as Paul paints this black, bleak 
picture in the early parts of the book of Romans. It just sets it up to be even more glorious as he starts to talk about justification by faith in Christ. Justification by faith. Well, this salvation... This is where we're we're going in verse 7 of Psalm 14, and that's where Paul, or David, excuse me, is going to end this psalm, this salvation. But before we get there in verses 4 through 6, we see the evildoer's frustration. So we've seen, first of all, the fool's corruption, verse 1. We've seen next the Lord's observation in verses 2 and 3. And now in verses 4 through 6, we see the evildoers' frustration. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, there they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous And then notice in verse 6, this is a direct address to these evildoers. You, David says, he turns his attention to them. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. David wonders, he ponders on this, that evildoers can act as they do. How can they be so set against God? Their words might sound high and lofty, highly intelligent, but the fact is that they act as though they have no knowledge. They are irrational. They work against God's people. They refuse to call upon the Lord so that they are in great terror. They carry around this irrational fear, living in great terror, rather than living in the fear of the Lord, which we saw in Proverbs 1.7 is the beginning of knowledge. No, instead they live in terror. Rustling leaves, sounds in the night. Psalm 53, the, the repetition of Psalm 14. Psalm 53 verse 5 has this small addition. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. These people are living in terror at nothing. Afraid of sounds. As I said, rustling leaves or, or sounds in the night. And it terrifies them because they know that they've been living opposed to God. And they have also not only irrational fears, but irrational hopes. You would shame the plans of the poor. But the Lord is his refuge. They didn't figure the Lord into their calculation. No, we are going to get rich off of the poverty of others. We are going to take advantage of fellow image bearers. But the Lord is the refuge of the poor. The Lord will not have it. This is the aim. This is the intention. This is the irrationality of the human condition 
apart from God's intervention. This is depravity. This is what the person apart from God is going to be pursuing until God grants a new heart. The human heart is set against him. Human actions are opposed to him and opposed to fellow image bearers. But as I said, verse 7 brings us to a, a note of hope, a note of triumph. It brings us to the glory of salvation. And we see that, verse 7, we see the believer's salvation. David calls out, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. The natural condition of mankind is set against God. The natural condition of mankind is living in this practical, anti-theistic denial of God, carrying out irrational hopes, irrational fears, refusing God. But God has not left humanity without a rational and a real hope that conquers fear. God has not left us. Even David, as an Old Testament saint, do you see this? Do you understand this? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He looked forward to a salvation that would come. He looked forward to Jesus. He looked forward to Messiah. David was one who knew God's choosing. David himself, he was chosen as the youngest, as the smallest, least likely to succeed, right? That was David's picture in the yearbook. And God said, he is my man. He is going to be my king, the smallest of his brothers, the least likely to be a success in the eyes of man. But the Lord chose him. The Lord anointed him as king. But even more, even more, and I want you to get this, church, God promised to David that his house and his kingdom would be made sure forever, that his throne would be established forever. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's one that you should even commit to memory so you can turn back there and remember God's awesome promise. David promised this. God promised this to David. Your throne and your kingdom would be established forever. This would extend well beyond David's own lifetime. It was too great to be fulfilled in his short number of years. It was a promise looking forward to the Messiah. It was a promise looking forward to the Redeemer, the Savior, who would come from the house of David, who would establish his throne forever. And this was accomplished in Jesus. Jesus comes to us as the greater than David. He descended from David. He establishes the throne of David forever and ever. 
And this is what David in Psalm 14, verse 7, is looking forward to, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That is God's holy hill. That is Jerusalem. Do you see, church, that all mankind is split in two? And split in two around Jesus. Two fundamental categories. We can give these different words, believer and unbeliever, repentant and unrepentant, wise and foolish, regenerate and unregenerate, born again, dead in sin. We could go on. But all mankind is split in two around Jesus. And we are all, by nature, children of wrath, turned away from God. And this is our inheritance from our first father, Adam, that we are born in sin, children of wrath, opposed to God. But that's not where God has left us. God has given hope. God has sent a Savior. I need to turn back to Romans again to read this for you. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is Adam's trespass, Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is Jesus's act of righteousness. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, this is the message, and this is what David hoped in. This is what helped set David on a sure foundation. That this would come, let Israel rejoice, let Jacob rejoice and be be glad. This is the work that the Lord is doing. As we've considered this morning the folly of the fool Let me say in conclusion that the greatest folly is to hear God's word, to know your depravity, which if you're honest, none of us can deny, not a single one of us, and to walk away or to somehow believe that you can make reparations apart from God. I can fix this on my own. I can do this. I can pick myself up. I can make things right. I don't need God. The fool says in his heart, no God. This is the height of folly. This is 
going to lead to the deepest of darkness, separated from God forever. But there is hope. There is salvation. There is cause for rejoicing because God has sent salvation through Jesus. God has sent salvation coming out of Jerusalem where Jesus came and he lived and he died and he was buried and where Jesus rose in triumph from the grave. And this is also from Jerusalem where Jesus ascended to heaven as the disciples looked on. They saw him go up to heaven and the promise was that in the way he went up, they would also see him come down. It is to Jerusalem that Jesus will return when he comes again, not as a suffering servant as he came the first time, but as a conquering king. Dear church, let's put our hope in Christ. Let's not walk in the way of foolishness. Let's not give way to foolishness, whether that's in our own hearts and our thinking or in the hearts and the minds of others. But as God leads us and gives us words to speak into the lives of others, that we would do so. We hold a great treasure, God's word, which leads us to salvation in Christ. This is a salvation that comes as a gift from God. Let's walk in it. Let's share this with others so that he would receive all glory and honor and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you that your word even calls us out at times. We might be a believer and at times act like an atheist, think like an atheist, refuse to submit or to obey. There might be times when we would rather just choose our own way. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to bring us back to bring us to a place of repentance, a place of confession, and to set us back on a right path that we might walk with you, that we might submit to you, which is for our greatest good because your will is perfect. Father, ground us in your word. We thank you for the salvation that you have offered to us that we don't need to walk any longer as fools and that we don't need to be summarized by the words that there are none who are on the side of God, none who understand, none who seek after God. By your spirit within us, We do understand. You have given light to our eyes. You have given us new hearts and new desires that we do seek after you, that we do seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And we recognize that these desires 
These searchings come as a gift, as grace from our heavenly Father. And so we give you thanks for that, Lord God. May these desires only grow stronger and stronger within us with each day as we pursue you, as we spend time with you, as we live in relationship with you and with those that you have surrounded us with in your body, in this local church. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.